Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Good evening, Little Masters, and welcome to episode 129 of the Prancing Pony Podcast, where tonight we tighten our belts and think with hope of the tables of Elrond's house. Well, assuming we survive the Black Riders that are coming to get us. Well, there is that. And folks, we'll head back to the common room in just a moment, but first, I'm Sean Marchese, the real-life Lord of the Mark, and I'm here with the Man of the West, who is often content with a single cloak, Alan Sisto. I know many histories and legends of long ago, too, Sean. You know, I'm beginning to wonder how old you really are, Alan, <laughs> and what's behind that rascally look you have, as we learned a few episodes ago. Yeah, yeah, sure. But, but before we get into all that, it's time for another installment of This Week in Tolkien History. So this episode is coming out on June 16th, which means that two days from now, June 18th, 2019, will be the 90th birthday of J.R.R. Tolkien's daughter, Priscilla Mary Ruel Tolkien. Ah. Priscilla is Ronald and Edith's fourth child and only daughter, and very familiar to any Tolkien fan who's ever read the Letters from Father Christmas. True. Because she was the last of the Tolkien children to still receive their father's legendary letters from the North Pole as late as 1943. Mm. As a child, she was also the owner of the vast collection of teddy bears, at least 60 of them, called the Bingos, who were mentioned in the Father Christmas letters. And that may have been an inspiration or partial inspiration for not only Frodo's original name of Bingo Bolger Baggins, but also, according to John Ratliff, might also have helped inspire Bayorn as well. True. Now, of course, Priscilla is also known to any of our listeners who are members of the Tolkien Society, some of whom we know have actually met her at past Oxenmoots, because she is the honorary vice president of the Tolkien Society, an office she's held since, well, since 1986. That's great. Yeah. So, happy birthday, Priscilla. Happy birthday, Priscilla. Well, also in or around this week in Tolkien history, the second half of June 1916 was a really tumultuous time for the members of the TCBS, oh, yeah. all of whom were away at war at the time. The Battle of the Somme began on July 1st, 1916, mm -hmm. and in the weeks before the inevitable offensive, the four friends sent each other letters filled with foreboding. Uh, G.B. Smith wrote one to Tolkien that Skull and Hammond's chronology dates to June 18th. They say possibly the 11th, but they, they put the 18th as the first date. Mm -hmm. And here's John Garth's description of that message from Tolkien in the Great War. G.B. Smith sent condolences that the hoped-for summer with Edith at Great Haywood had been cut short. And that's because Tolkien had actually just left his wife on June 4th. And that Tolkien would not be coming to join him in the Salford Pals. Now, that's the battalion that Smith was serving in. Mm -hmm. Smith wrote, I do pray for you at all times and in all places, he added, and may you survive, 
and we survived the fiery trial of these events without loss of our powers or our determination, so shall all things be for good. Meanwhile, trust God and keep your powder dry, and be assured that to three other men you are more than their own selves. Hmm. Wow. Really, just a very poignant message yeah. from G.B. Smith to his friend. Yeah. And just in case we haven't mentioned it lately, if you haven't read John Garth's book yet, you absolutely oh, have to, absolutely. especially if you've seen the Tolkien biopic. Without a doubt. You must read that book. I would actually have advised you to read that book before you see the biopic so you have yeah. a frame of reference. Absolutely. But if you've seen yeah. the pic, go read the book, please. And then go listen to, I think, is it episode 44 when we had him on? I don't recall that the was, number for yeah. sure, but I think That's so. Right. Mm-hmm. It was one of our first season interviews, but he's fantastic. And of course, we talked to him again in episode 88 at Myth Moon mm-hmm. 5. At Myth so, Moon, yep. Yeah. Finally, June 16th, since we're still on This Week in Tolkien History, June 16th, 1958, <laughs> is the date that Skull and Hammond give for the day that Tolkien wrote back to Rainer Unwin on the infamous Zimmerman treatment for The Lord of the Rings. Now, what we know is letter number 210 to Forrest J. Ackerman, containing Tolkien's um, concerns about the project. That's <laughs> <laughs> putting it quite mildly. <laughs> Very mildly. He kept writing in increasing levels of anger. <laughs> and another thing. I'm sorry, I can all, all I can hear is Tom yep. Shippey. <laughs> he wrote the letter and sent it to Rainer Unwin on this date, June 16th, 1958, and then it was apparently forwarded on by Unwin. Uh, not that there's a whole lot to say about that, but it gave us a chance to bring up that funny thing, and we thought we would. Absolutely. <laughs> and I'm sure you know that we both think it's funny, especially if you've ever listened yeah. to us before, obviously. Yeah. So on that note, we'll wrap it up for This Week in Tolkien History. Yes, we are. And now we're going to go ahead and listen to yet another version of The Lay of Luthien in the last part of Chapter 11, A Knife in the Dark. All right. And we're going to go ahead and start shortly after we left off the last time. So the hobbits are in the dell, and they are making a meal, an evening meal, and they're really hungry. They realize they haven't eaten anything all day. And that, Sean, is where I'm going to have you pick up. Okay. The lands ahead were empty of all, save birds and beasts, unfriendly places deserted by all the races of the world. Rangers passed at times beyond the hills, but they were few and did not stay. Other wanderers were rare and of evil sort. Trolls might stray down at times out of the northern valleys of the Misty Mountains. Only on the road would travelers be found, most often dwarves, hurrying along on business of their own, and with no help and few words to spare for strangers. I don't see how our food can be made to last, said Frodo. We've been careful enough in the last few days, and this supper is no feast but we have used more than we ought if we have two weeks still to go, and perhaps more. There's food in the wild, said Strider, berry, root, and herb, and I have some skill as a hunter at need. You need not be afraid of starving before winter comes, but gathering and catching food is long and weary work, and we need haste. So tighten your belts and think with hope of the tables of Elrond's house. Wow. Well, yeah, hope of the tables of Elrond's house. I mean, it's going to be two weeks away, but if we make it there, it's going to be a nice feast. Yeah. Yeah. And and well-earned, as you said, you know, before I read that, um, this is yeah. just the, the very, very small dinner, really, that they're having here. It's no feast. Right. And Strider, of course, a little bit of that, I'm not going to say self-deprecation here, but certainly he's humble about his skills. I have some skill as a hunter at need. Yeah, I'm sure he has I'm, much I'm more sure than some skill. I'm pretty sure his skill is much more. Than, yeah, exactly. But, That's kind of what I'm but thinking. But his, his point here, the, the more important point is, yeah, he can find yeah. food, but it's going to take time, and they need to get there quickly. Yeah, They're, exactly. They need to get there before the riders catch up to them. Before winter comes, mm-hmm. because winter is coming. No, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> 
sorry. Yeah. I don't even watch the thing. So I, I just, but I, I saw that line of, whoa, winter's coming. That's funny. Okay. I mean, everybody knows that one. Yeah. We get a description of the lands ahead. I thought this was interesting. Trolls might stray down at times. And we know that's true because we encountered We have met three the of Hobbit. them in the past. Yeah. Yeah. Reminder that there's just sort of ever-present danger in this area, you know? Yeah. That the this few is people the who are around here are yeah. not good guys. No, no. And what's funny is, even though I just said this is the Wildlands, this really isn't still, because the edge of the wild isn't until the other side of the Misty Mountains. Oh, that's true. Yeah. I mean, this is still wild and wilder debris yeah. into the Shire, but it's not as bad as it could get. Right. So, yeah, he just cautions them to tighten their belts, and they just kind of settle in for the evening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Frodo and the hobbits are very cold, wrapped in yeah. every garment and blanket the they right? possess to try and stay warm. Uh, but Strider, the experienced outdoorsman that he is, is yeah, is just wearing a single cloak, and that is where you're going to pick up. That's exactly right. As night fell and the light of the fire began to shine out brightly, he began to tell them tales to keep their minds from fear. He knew many histories and legends of long ago, of elves and men and the good and evil deeds of the elder days. They wondered how old he was and where he had learned all this lore. Tell us of Gilgalad, said Mary suddenly, when he paused at the end of a story of the elf kingdoms. Do you know any more of that old lay that you spoke of? I do indeed, answered Strider. So also does Frodo, for it concerns us closely. Mary and Pippin looked at Frodo, who was staring into the fire. I think this is another one of those moments where Strider is trying to get Frodo to step up a little bit, huh? Yeah, I think so. Anyway, back to the text, but I wanted to call mm-hmm, that out. Absolutely. I know only the little that Gandalf has told me, said Frodo slowly. Gilgalad was the last of the great elf kings of Middle-earth. Gilgalad is starlight in their tongue. With Elendil, the elf friend, he went to the land of... No, said Strider, interrupting. I do not think that tale should be told now with the servants of the enemy at hand. If we went through to the house of Elrond, you may hear it there, told in full. Well, then tell us some other tale of the old days, begged Sam. A tale about the elves before the fading time. I would dearly like to hear more about elves. The dark seems to press round so close. That's where I'm going to stop for a little bit. Tell us a story, Mr. Strider. (laughs) (laughs) Another story, because he's been telling stories all night, yeah. All night to keep their minds from fear. He's a wise man. Yeah. You know, most people tell spooky stories at a campfire. This is the opposite. Although, I don't know. He's telling stories of the elf kingdoms. Do you think he's telling the story of the elf kingdom that was destroyed by Balrogs or the elf kingdom that was destroyed by a dragon? (laughs) Or Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or maybe he talked about those lovely ships being burned. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Or the elf kingdom <laughs> that was betrayed by dwarves or, you know. I mean, or the trees sucked dead by a spider. Right. The size of a large house. Yeah. yeah. All I'm saying is that there's not a whole lot of happy stories of the first age. That <laughs> no, there aren't. <laughs> there aren't. You're right. You are right. Oh, man. But at least he's distracting them. You're yes, right about absolutely. that. absolutely. And Mary comes right back around to Gilgalad, who we talked about last yeah. time. And uh, wants to know more about him. We heard a little bit about him earlier. Let's let's hear a little bit more. Yeah. And it starts going the wrong direction. Yeah, no, it does. But I think I'm thinking back to your aside during the reading. And yeah, yeah, he, yeah. Strider is really looking to Frodo to step up a little bit and, yeah. you know. Take some of the leadership. Be a leader. Exactly. You know, I'm, I'm telling these exactly stories right. to keep you distracted. And now it's your turn. Yeah. You know some of this story. You know some of this yeah. stuff. You tell these guys what's going on. Don't, don't rely yeah. on me to do everything. But then as soon yeah. as Frodo does... He goes the wrong direction. He goes the wrong way, yeah. Veers off to the wrong side of the story. And Strider's like, no, that was a bad idea. Yep. I love what Sam has to say here at the end. 
a tale about the elves before the fading time. Mm. Yeah, that that really key word, fading. I mean, we've talked about yeah. that before, but I think we can yes, we, we can touch on it a little bit again here. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got a, a really cool quote on it in the famous letter number one thirty one. And come on, <laughs> would it really be an episode of the Prince Pony podcast without a reference to letter one thirty one? I'm not sure it would. Actually. I know, right? Tolkien says in that letter. There was nothing wrong, essentially, in the elves lingering against council, still sadly with the mortal lands of their old heroic deeds. But they wanted to have their cake without eating it. I love the way he phrased that, Mm -hmm. by the way. Yeah. But it's right. I mean, Tolkien goes on to say they wanted the peace and bliss and perfect memory of the West, and yet to remain on the ordinary earth, where their prestige as the highest people, above wild elves, dwarves, and men, was greater than at the bottom of the hierarchy of Valinor. Basically, they didn't want to go to high school. They wanted to stay in junior high because they'd finally climbed the social ladder. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Big fish, small pond. Exactly. Tolkien goes on to say, They thus became obsessed with fading, the mode in which the changes of time, the law of the world under the sun, was perceived by them. They became sad, and their art, shall we say, antiquarian, and their efforts all really a kind of embalming. Mm. And we've talked before about how yeah. the fate of the elves is to fade and to that's correct to hand over Arda to men, hand over Middle Earth mm-hmm. to men, and and to the extent that the rings provide mm-hmm. that preservation, yeah, there's there's a problem. Kind of allow you know, them that's, to, that's to a, hang on past their time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to drink milk that's got an expiration date of three months ago, you know. But <laughs> this is they're really past their. <laughs> this date. is a few thousand years we're talking about. Yeah, right. <laughs> what was the song from They Might Be Giants? I came back as a bag of groceries accidentally taken oh, off yeah, the yeah. shelf before the yeah. date stamped on my side. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so here they're uh, way past the date stamped on their side. Yes, they are. So anyway, <laughs> and I, I'll do everybody a favor and not, and sing, not, that song. not sing the song. That's correct. But of course, Strider does say, okay, fine, Sam, I'll, I'll tell you a story. And that's where we're going to read this a little differently. We're going to take turns with a couple of stanzas each. I'm going to go ahead, though, and have Sean start us out, though. This is what happens when we fight over a reading, is that we end up just spinning <laughs> As it. we each get parts. Yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding. We didn't really fight over it, but no. we both wanted it. And, and I know that's why you divided it up the way you did. <laughs> exactly. I will tell you the tale of Tenuviel, said Strider, in brief, for it is a long tale, of which the end is not known. And there are none now, except Elrond, that remember it aright as it was told of old. Actually, I'm going to pause right there because I love this observation that the end is not known. Right. Remember that Tolkien had not actually written the end of the Lay of Lathian mm-hmm. when he started That's writing of the Rings. Yeah. A little bit of a, a, little, a little meta a little there. Meta. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. I'd forgotten about that, but you're right. At this point, he had not completed I it. I just picked yeah. up on that as I was saying that. <laughs> That's great right, stuff. Back to Strider. Yeah. It is a fair tale, though it is sad, as are all the tales of Middle Earth and yet it may lift up your hearts. He was silent for some time, and then he began not to speak, but to chant softly. The leaves were long, the grass was green, the hemlock umbels dull and fair, and in the glade a light was seen of stars in shadow shimmering. Genuviel was dancing there the, to music of a pipe unseen, and light of stars was in her hair and in her raiment glimmering. There Berin came from mountains cold, and lost he wandered under leaves, and where the elven river rolled he walked alone and sorrowing. He peered between the hemlock leaves and saw in wonder flowers of gold upon her mantle and her sleeves, and her hair like shadow following. Hmm. Well, thank you, Professor. I'll go ahead and skip ahead yeah. a couple of stanzas. 
Yeah. When winter passed, she came again, and her song released the sudden spring, like rising lark and falling rain and melting water bubbling. He saw the elven flowers spring about her feet, and healed again he longed by her to dance and sing upon the grass untroubling. Again she fled, but swift he came. Tenuviel, Tenuviel, he called her by her elvish name, and there she halted listening. One moment stood she, and a spell his voice laid on her. Baron came, and doom fell on Tenuviel, that in his arms lay glistening. As Baron looked into her eyes within the shadows of her hair, the trembling starlight of the skies he saw there mirrored shimmering. Tenuviel the elven fair, immortal maiden elven wise, about him cast her shadowy hair and arms like silver glimmering. Long was the way that fate them bore, o'er stony mountains cold and gray, through halls of iron and darkling door, and woods of nightshade morrowless. The sundering seas between them lay, and yet at last they met once more, and long ago they passed away in the forest singing sorrowless. Man. That is such a beautiful, beautiful set of verse. It is. It's absolutely breathtaking. I would have loved to have had Tolkien read all the stanzas, because he does in the J.R.R. Tolkien mm -hmm. audio collection, mm -hmm. all nine stanzas. So again, please go get that. That's why we only play the <laughs> yes, few. Yes, absolutely. Oh. It's so cool. It's such a great poem. And, and I love really hearing is. Tolkien read it because you really get a sense of the structure of the stanza. The musical mm -hmm. nature of it, yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. And just the structure, the way, you know, you see it presented oh, yeah. on the absolutely. page as eight lines, but it's really two sets of four. And you really yes, kind of get that the way he reads it. And, and I hope we, mm -hmm. I know we both tried to duplicate that and I hope we tried, hope but we did yeah, it. that's a pretty high bar. But before we actually get into the content of the lay itself, I love the line that Strider says here. It is a fair tale, though it is sad, as are all the tales of Middle Earth. Mm -hmm. And yet it may lift up your hearts. There's, we see this a lot, don't we? The truth that sorrow is a part of this world. It's, it's part of the fabric of Arda. And that's okay. Yeah. Because it can still be encouraging. It's a rich concept. And it's something that I think, you know, at first glance, we want to try to avoid sorrow. We, want to, we don't want to experience sorrow. Yeah. But when you look at what sorrow can lead to, the, the poignant moments and the, the just, I'm sorry, I, I'm kind of at a loss for words, yeah. but I really loved what he had to say there about that sadness yeah. and yet encouragement. Well, yeah. I like what you're saying about how you can sort of accept the fact that there is just sorrow in the world and yet you can still right. take hope from that because there are other things there mm -hmm. as well. You know, I'm also thinking about how this kind of reflects a little bit in what you see in really like the, the most ancient literary theory we have, which is Aristotle's poetics. You know, anybody mm -hmm. who's studied Greek tragedy has heard of catharsis, you know, the idea that right. the end of the tragedy, you, you see this horrible thing happen on the stage and you experience this release of emotions and, and relief, yeah. really. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's uh, it's sort of like a, a purification or, or a cleansing. Um, and it's, sure. it's a little bit like some of the stuff Tolkien talks about in On Fairy Stories. And, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. while it maybe isn't quite happiness, you know, catharsis isn't quite happiness, no. but it is... It is sort of an emotional reaction, and I think right, I think that's right. kind of what what Aragorn is talking about here. You know, you you yeah. hear these sad stories, and you do feel something, and that might make you feel better. Yeah, and he says that it's a it's sad as are all the tales of Middle Earth, and that made me think of two things. If we go all the way back, 
all the way back to episode five. Wow. When we talked about the Ainulindale. Yeah. And we get the third theme of Iluvatar, and it said that the one was deep. And, and when I say the one, it's because it's in comparison to Melkor. So that third theme was deep and wide and beautiful, mm-hmm. but slow and blended with an immeasurable sorrow from which its beauty chiefly came. Oh, yeah. That's so, there's so much the there. The beauty and the sorrow, and then, yeah. Right. And and it's that sorrow that leads to the beauty. And we get that even with something out of Valaquenta just a few pages later when we're talking about Nienna. She is acquainted with grief and mourns for every wound that Arda has suffered in the mm. marring of Melkor. So great was her sorrow as the music unfolded that her song turned to lamentation long before its end. And the sound of mourning was woven into the themes of the world before it began. Yeah. But she does not weep for herself. And those who hearken to her learn pity and endurance in hope. So there we go. Yeah. That links right back You're to Strider talking right. about how this may lift your heart. You're so. absolutely right. Yep. Oh, man. Yeah. So th- <laughs> it just flashed into my head and I yeah, realized, oh, man, catch. there's so much there. I got to pull that up. That's a good catch because you do get the release, you know, sort of the yeah. Aristotelian release, but you also get this hope too. And I think that's. Yeah, you really do. And that's what you get when you, you know, when you read some of these stories of the first age, you go back and read the Silmarillion mm-hmm. as. Oh, yeah. We did back in season one. I mean, even something like the story of Turin Turambar, which is just completely <laughs> dark all and bleak terrible, and tragic, right? you know, that kind of yeah, gives you yeah. that catharsis a little bit. But then when you look at it in the grander scheme, you know, you mm-hmm. see that hope does come from that. Yeah, absolutely. All of these are tied together and uh, everything has a purpose. That's I know that's cliche in many ways, but in Middle Earth, it is not cliche. No, it's uh, it is simply the truth. It's the fabric of the world. Yeah. Yes, it is. So for more on that, please go to our trilogy of episodes on Baron and Luthien, episodes 31 to 33. We spent more than six hours covering this story. We'll talk about it here, of course. We've got a pretty lengthy sidebar mm-hmm. on it. But if you want more, that's where to dig in. Yeah, that's where we talked uh, through the, what is it, about 20 pages, maybe like 19 pages <laughs> yeah, of the story yeah. in the Silmarillion. We also brought in a lot of stuff Some bits from, from the, the Lay, Lay of yeah. Lathian, which is the, mm-hmm. the, the long verse form that Tolkien yeah. started. Uh, got got yep. pretty far along through, but he didn't quite finish ends it. With, uh, ends right at the stump of Baron's <laughs> wrist, actually. <laughs> yep, it does. <laughs> Chomp, and it's over. Yeah. Yeah. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This is a condensed version of the story that we get here in this chapter, um, uh-huh. and it is in the same meter as the Lay of Lathian, but I think it's worth pointing out that it's not a simple excerpt from that longer poem. It, no, it's actually no. a reworking of a different poem that was originally called Light as Leaf on Linden Tree. Now, that was originally published in the Leeds University magazine, The Griffin, in June 1925, but Hammond and Skull point out that it was being worked on as early as 1919 or 1920, so very early wow. in the development of the Legendarium. Yeah. There are several pages in The Lays of Balerion, that's History of Middle-Earth, Volume 3, that uh-huh. kind of chart Tolkien's early attempts to work the poem into the Legendarium. Yeah. 
Now, ironically, on his earliest attempts to do so, he did not simply rework the poem into what became the Lay of Lathian. He actually first added this as an insert to the alliterative Lay of the Children of Hurin. Now, there's, I know, like, what? Right, I know. There's a moment in the incomplete draft of that epic poem in which Turin, still a young man at the time, is lost in the forest on his way to Doriath with a guardian, a servant of his mother's named Halog. Then a song he made them for sorrow's lightening, a sudden sweetness in the silent wood that his light as leaf on linden called, whose music of mirth and mourning blended, yet in hearts does echo. This did Halog sing them. So that clearly is alliterative verse, but then at that point, mm -hmm. Tolkien breaks from that alliterative verse and then dives into an early version of this poem in the same iambic tetrameter that you see here, you know, this very yeah. musical uh -huh. rhyming verse with the same rhyme scheme as the version that Aragorn sings to the hobbits here. And that's uh -huh. a little bit of that structure I was talking about that you hear in Tolkien's reading. Right. The rhyme scheme that you've got here is basically A, B, A, C, and that's the first four lines of the stanza. Right. And then the right. second four lines are B, A, B, C. So each right. fourth line is that rhyming C. Uh -huh. So that kind of breaks up the stanza of eight lines into two sets of four. And it's really cool when you hear Tolkien read it. It is, isn't it? It's just yeah. a neat structure. Christopher Tolkien actually points out the similarity between Halog singing the song for Turin and Aragorn singing it for the hobbits. He says, the one scene is actually the precursor of the other. That's right. Yeah. And I just have one more thing I want to say about the verse form of the poem. As we'll see in my next reading, Aragorn explains to the hobbits that this poem is in an elvish mode called Anthenath, which Hammond and Skull offer a little bit of background on. In an essay called Three Elvish Verse Modes in Tolkien's Legendarium, Essays on the History of Middle-Earth, two Tolkien linguists, Patrick Wynne and Carl F. Hostetter, and those are names that you should know if you are interested in studying Tolkien's languages at all. Yeah, They've done absolutely, yeah. a ton of work on, on his languages. But they pointed out that there is no evidence that Tolkien ever actually wrote the original Elvish poem said to underlie this translated version. However, they assume that the original was in Sindarin because Anthenath is Sindarin for long shorts. <laughs> or huh. less literally, they think it probably means something like longs and shorts. Oh, okay, because I'm thinking I'm going to wear my on thin off tomorrow because it's going to be Yeah, you're going to wear like your, your 80s my like Bermudas, board right. shorts. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we digress. <laughs> yep. So looking at some of the actual passages in the poem, we want to call out a few of these and kind of just talk through yeah, some of them. Yeah, just a few fun details. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Especially for those of you who did go through it with us in the Silmarillion. Uh, there's that line, music of a pipe unseen. Mm, yep. Remember Dairon the Minstrel? Remember, he was in love with Luthien. He was jealous of Baron. He was the one who ended up turning Luthien in to Thingol. Right. That music of a pipe unseen references him, interestingly. And then we get, Baron came from mountains cold. Well, where did he come from? If you look at the Silmarillion or you look at the Lay of Lathian, you get details of his nightmare journey, and that's putting it mildly, over the Arid Gorgoroth, the Mountains of Terror, and through Nandungortheb, the Valley of Dreadful Death, because the Valley of Death is not terrifying enough. <laughs> it's got to be the Valley of Dreadful Death. Yeah. The Valley of Terribly Dreadful. Don't go here, Death. <laughs> yes. By the way, have we mentioned, don't go to this valley. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So a little further on in the passage that I read, we get this description of her song, Like Rising Lark and Falling Rain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The lark, of course, is a, a bird that tends to sing at dawn. Mm -hmm. Luthien's name, Tenuviel, actually means nightingale. 
And that, of course, is, oh, a, right. is a yeah. bird that, that sings at dusk. One of our listeners, oh, yeah. Tom H., who has a, a really awesome blog, Alas Not Me, which we'll post mm-hmm. a link to in our show notes. Uh, but he's actually written, he wrote an essay before, and he kind of alerted me to the fact that larks and nightingales are actually literary opposites. They tend to be opposed yeah. in, in a lot of English literature. In fact, Shakespeare contrasted them in Romeo and Juliet. So that's just kind of a neat contrast, sort of comparing her to the lark while she is the nightingale. Right. Then we get this bit about elven flowers springing about her feet. Mm-hmm. We discussed long ago in those episodes of season one, I'm sure, that this may be some <laughs> yeah. Maya power. You know, her mother, Melian, oh, yeah. Yeah. the Maya, had served two Valar. She had served Vana, who is actually the Vala of flowers and, and, and right. growth and things like that, as well as Este, the Vala of healing. Right. Well, that certainly does seem a, a Vana-like power, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Flower yeah. springing. Yeah. I can't do that. No. <laughs> I don't want to do that, but even if I wanted to, I couldn't. I can do many things, Sean. It would be lovely if you did, though, just sort of prancing across the flowers field. Are flowers are just, I don't prance. The only prancing around here is done by a pony. <laughs> Very well done. make that nice, real clear. Nice. <laughs> so then we get this line, and doom fell on Tenuviel. Now, we have to go to Appendix A, 1-5 for this, but we get this line about Aragorn and Arwen that is similar. And thus it was that Arwen first beheld him again after their long parting. And as he came walking towards her under the trees of Karas Garadhan, laden with flowers of gold, her choice was made and her doom appointed. Wow. Yeah, the parallel there is really strong. And just the idea that simply looking at the person you're going to fall in love with, that makes your doom appointed. That, Done. That makes your, yeah. your, your fate is sealed, basically. Yep. Just by looking Absolutely. at them and falling in love, you're you're doomed to to have a fate different from, you know, the elves who you the rest come of from. your kind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Amazing stuff. But then we get to Aragorn's prose explanation, and that's where we're going to get into some really good stuff here. I'm going to have you read that for us, Sean. Can you pick up there? I can. Strider sighed and paused before he spoke again. That is a song, he said, in the mode that is called Anthenath among the elves, but is hard to render in our common speech and this is but a rough echo of it. It tells of the meeting of Beren, son of Barahir, and Luthien Tenuviel. Beren was a mortal man, but Luthien was the daughter of Thingol, a king of elves upon Middle-earth when the world was young, and she was the fairest maiden that has ever been among all the children of this world. As the stars above the mists of the northern lands was her loveliness, and in her face was a shining light. In those days the great enemy, of whom Sauron of Mordor was but a servant, dwelt in Angband in the north, and the elves of the west, coming back to Middle-earth, made war upon him, to regain the Silmarils which he had stolen, and the fathers of men aided the elves. But the enemy was victorious, and Barahir was slain, and Beren, escaping through great peril, came over the mountains of terror into the hidden kingdom of Thingol in the forest of Neldoreth. There he beheld Luthien singing and dancing in a glade, beside the enchanted river as Galduin, and he named her Tenuviel, that is Nightingale in the language of old. Many sorrows befell them afterwards, and they were parted long. Tenuviel rescued Baron from the dungeons of Sauron, and together they passed through great dangers, and cast down even the great enemy from his throne, and took from his iron crown one of the three Silmarils, brightest of all jewels, to be the bride price of Luthien to Thingol her father. Yet at the last, Beren was slain by the wolf that came from the gates of Angband, and he died in the arms of Tenuviel, 
but she chose mortality, and to die from the world so that she might follow him. And it is sung that they met again beyond the sundering seas, and after a brief time walking alive once more in the green woods, together they passed, long ago, beyond the confines of this world. So it is that Luthien Tenuviel, alone of the elf kindred, has died indeed and left the world, and they have lost her whom they most loved. Hmm. He goes on to then talk about the lineage, of course, and gets to Eärendil and Elrond and Numenor. Very brief and to the point, mm -hmm. really, when yeah. you think about it. Yeah, I mean, and realize this is basically the entire Silmarillion in a single paragraph. Just about, <laughs> Remember, yeah. Remember at the end of the Silmarillion when we got the entirety of The Lord of the Rings uh -huh. in just a few paragraphs? Well, yeah. here we've got the opposite. Yeah, you're right. It is the, almost the entirety of the Silmarillion in one page. Mm -hmm. Thanks very much, yeah. Gorn. I appreciate that there. Yeah. Man, I thought we moved fast. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Aragorn flies right through it. Aragorn does the Silmarillion in one episode. Mm -hmm. We're on to season two now. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us for this 20-minute podcast of season one. Anyway. <laughs> I will note, though, there's nothing about Gondolin in this particular passage. No, that's true. That. You have to go to The Hobbit for a reference to Gondolin. That's true. You're right. You're right. We do. You know, all that aside, can you just take a moment to stop and remember how you felt the first time you read oh, all goodness. of this? Like, this for me yeah. was one of those moments where I was just like, wow. Like, yeah. you just jaw dropping moment. Yeah, yeah. How much backstory there is there and how much of a world mm -hmm. there is. To discover. And at the time, of course, I didn't realize that it wasn't in this book. I thought maybe I'd get some of that backstory here, but uh, right, right. You know, you end up having to go to a different book for it. I can't imagine what it was like for people <laughs> who read this before the Silmarillion was out. And I know, and could not go I know. To I think about that all the time. Mm -hmm. There's so many references to things in the Silmarillion. Yeah. Uh, that just for readers must have been, well, those textual ruins for a yeah, good, that's true. You know, like you said last year. Yeah. 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 So, of course, there are some things that Aragorn doesn't explain, even though he talks about. Elwing and Arendil and Numenor and Westerness. He doesn't explain his own direct descent from this union. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. He could have said, uh, what was the line? There live still those of whom Luthien was the foremother, like me. Yeah, and Like me. <laughs> That's right. You're looking at him. And of Arendil came the kings of Numenor and me. And me. <laughs> I love that. That's right. He absolutely could have. And of course, he says nothing about how much this parallels his mm -hmm. relationship with Arwen. Mm -hmm. He doesn't mention Arwen at all. That's true. And of course, the hobbits have no clue. Going back to Paul Coker's Master of Middle-earth, he says, none of the hobbits has the faintest glimmer of an idea why Aragorn chooses this particular legend to recite. And neither have we at first reading, right. thanks to Tolkien's failure to mention Arwen at all up to that point. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, we have just met Aragorn, so why? Well, it's true. Like, we don't just need a to hear about his ago. girlfriend just yet. But <laughs> No, that's true. We got to give the girls hope that maybe he's single for a little while. Yeah. Get him interested. Yeah. Yeah. Like Eowyn. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> sorry. So Coker goes on to say, but in the light of later revelations, it can dawn on us that the longing for Arwen is a torment, a joy, a despair, a comfort to Aragorn in a time of little hope. Small wonder that he is strange and grim at times, but he seldom speaks of the life of private emotions stirring within. Have, have we mentioned, by the way, that the chapter on Aragorn and Coker's book is pretty good? <laughs> you're, you're not kidding. And wow, that's yeah. just lovely. Yeah. It is. Yeah. And we get that sorrow and despair, th uh, not despair, but, you know, sorrow and joy. I mean, they mentioned the word despair, but this this whole A and B, it's both at the same time. Mm -hmm. It's a torment and a joy. It's a despair and a comfort. Yeah. And that's just how stories in Middle Earth are. Yeah, that's true. 
Absolutely. You know, I, I, as you say that, I'm thinking back to when he's talking about Luthien's beauty. Yeah. I mean, remember that Arwen is said to have looked a lot like Luthien. Yeah, so yeah, absolutely. Aragorn knows that. And so as he's describing Luthien, he is totally thinking about Arwen. And, and you got to think some of these words that he's using to describe Luthien in, oh, yeah. in his mind, Absolutely. he's thinking Arwen, which is, is pretty I mean, cool. He even calls her Tenuviel, doesn't he? You know, I mean, that's what we read he in the appendix. He does in the appendix, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. the first time yeah, he sees her. he does. Yeah. Because that's who she reminds him of. Yeah. Wonderful that's moment. That's so cool. That is so cool. And there's a lot there about Luthien, isn't there? I mean, there's, yeah. there's more there even behind. You know, we talk about this story of Luthien and, and Baron, and then we talk about Aragorn and Arwen, but there's more, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, there's even so much significance to Tolkien's own life because right. we've talked many times before, people know this, about how yeah. Edith was to Tolkien himself as Luthien was to Baron. So much so that, again, I think most people know that the names Baron and Luthien are carved along with their own yeah. names on their tombstone in the Wolvercut Cemetery. Yeah. I mean, I think there's there's a lot to be said on that, but I, I really, really want to have you do this, Alan. I know we we talked about this. This isn't a, sure. This isn't no, this isn't a surprise. No, but I, we just really thought it would be appropriate to have Alan read from letter number 340, yeah. which Tolkien wrote to his son Christopher in uh, 1972. It was actually less than a year after Edith's passing and just over a year before Tolkien's own death. Yeah. Folks, you might want to get a tissue handy. I have to tell you, when preparing our notes for this episode, I, I wept when reading this, even though I've read it before. Uh, you know, I'll try to get through it, but I'm not going to, probably not going to be able to read this without at least a crack in my voice. First, he tells Christopher the inscription that he would like on her grave, Edith Mary Tolkien, 1899 to 1971, and the name Luthien. He then says that Luthien says for me more than a multitude of words, for she was and knew she was I Luthien. Later, he says, I hope none of my children will feel that the use of this name is a sentimental fancy. It is, at any rate, not comparable to the quoting of pet names and obituaries. I never called Edith Luthien, but she was the source of the story that in time became the chief part of the Silmarillion. It was first conceived in a small woodland glade filled with hemlocks at Prue's in Yorkshire, where I was for a brief time in command of an outpost of the Humber garrison in 1917, and she was able to live with me for a while. In those days her hair was raven, her skin clear, her eyes brighter than you have seen them, and she could sing and dance. But the story has gone crooked, and I am left, and I cannot plead before the inexorable Mandos. And then later, after talking a bit about how they rescued one another in their youth, and that's another beautiful segment of the letter, mm -hmm. he said, Forever, especially when alone, we still met in the woodland glade and went hand in hand many times to escape the shadow of imminent death before our last parting. Man. Yeah. That's beautiful. It really is. That is hard to get through. I mean, it's um, yeah. the idea of, of walking with her many times, uh, as, as often as they could, to escape that shadow of imminent death before our last parting. Yeah. He's going off to war at that point. You know, he's going off to, to France and to fight, and he doesn't know whether he'll come back. And they part. Yeah. It's a really, really poignant moment. But boy, the way he describes her is wonderful, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's so beautiful. It is. I mean, there, you, can, you can tell how much he truly, oh. truly loved his wife, you know, and I think... The admiration he had for her. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, first of all, to, you know, immortalize her the way he did in his story, mm -hmm. you know, and to immortalize oh, yeah. their, their relationship to the degree he did. I mean, obviously, it's not, a, it's not an allegory, well, yeah. but 
that there's definitely some symbolism there. But um, yeah, just so much love there. I mean, and they spent their entire lives together. You know, they met when absolutely he was a kid. He was was sixteen. She was nineteen. Yeah, such a long time. Yeah, amazing stuff. Yeah, it really is. And again, I just I think I've said this before, but sometimes I feel totally inadequate. You know, like I shouldn't even have the right to read these letters. They're so personal. They're so just intimate. I, I know uh, what it, I know what you mean, especially the letters to you know his his sons and to Edith early yeah, on. You know, yeah. there's they're they're very personal, but they're also very beautiful. You know, and they are. Uh, they reveal a side of him that is just uh, it just makes me admire him all the uh-huh. more. Really we does. we know so much about his mind from reading his stories and reading mm-hmm. his philological work and things like that. Right, but, you know, all of reading, his academic works, his translations, yeah. and yeah, reading his letters really shows you his heart. Yeah, agreed. It's, Absolutely. And it's great stuff. And the comparisons to, you know, I cannot plead before the inexorable man yeah. does. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, great stuff. It is. Uh, and with that behind us, we're going to go ahead and move back into the narrative. And some some pretty big things are happening now, and I'm going to pick up right after that. It's go time, people. Yeah, it is go time. <laughs> You're absolutely right, man. As Strider was speaking, they watched his strange, eager face, dimly lit in the red glow of the wood fire. His eyes shone and his voice was rich and deep. Above him was a black, starry sky. Suddenly, a pale light appeared over the crown of Weathertop behind him. The waxing moon was climbing slowly above the hill that overshadowed them, and the stars above the hilltop faded. The story ended. The hobbits moved and stretched. Look, said Mary, the moon is rising. It must be getting late. The others looked up. Even as they did so, they saw on the top of the hill something small and dark against the glimmer of the moonrise. It was perhaps only a large stone or jutting rock shown up by the pale light. Sam and Mary got up and walked away from the fire. Frodo and Pippin remained seated in silence. Strider was watching the moonlight on the hill intently. All seemed quiet and still. But Frodo felt a cold dread creeping over his heart now that Strider was no longer speaking. He huddled closer to the fire. At that moment, Sam came running back from the edge of the dell. I don't know what it is, he said, but I suddenly felt afraid. I durstn't go outside this dell for any money. I felt that something was creeping up the slope. Did you see anything? asked Frodo, springing to his feet. No, sir, I saw nothing, but I didn't stop to look. I saw something, said Mary, or I thought I did. Away westwards, where the moonlight was falling on the flats beyond the shadow of the hilltops, I thought there were two or three black shapes. They seemed to be moving this way. Keep close to the fire with your faces outward, cried Strider. Get some of the longer sticks ready in your hands. Here we go, man. Here we go. You're right. It's go time. Totally. Boy, does he build the tension here in an incredibly effective way. He really does. I mean, it goes, it really goes from kind of the the slow kind of travel narrative pace to this action pace really quickly. It just switches so so suddenly. And yeah. He gets you right there into the action. He absolutely does. Frodo feels this cold dread, and it's related to Strider no longer speaking. I thought that was interesting. Mm, yeah, good catch. You know, we talked about Strider telling these stories to to put their minds at ease, to distract them from the fear. And now that Strider's silent, oh boy, that fear is back and in a big, big way. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. What a cool catch. It's just, God, it just gives me the, the chills every time I read this. And then Sam knows something is up because he felt afraid. Yeah. He didn't see anything, but he just felt but that fear. And it. we know that, I mean, that's mm-hmm. the weapon of the Nazgul, isn't it? 
Yeah, it is. And we just talked about the other senses, right? I mean, Strider mm-hmm. told them senses there are beyond just, you know, vision and hearing. And if and we feel like them, they feel us even more so. Yeah. So now we know there's there's a real issue. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, Mary actually thinks he saw them, describes the fact that he saw two or three black shapes. So Strider tells them to prepare. And boy, what a, just a terrifying moment this must be for all of the hobbits. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just absolutely paralyzing fear. Mm-hmm. And Frodo feels like he has to shout. He he wants to break the silence. And Strider seems to pick up on that and tells him to be quiet. Mm-hmm. At the same time, Pippin sees them, and that's where you're well, going to begin. Well, I think that's the ring at work, isn't it? I mean... I think it is, I yeah. Think, you know, he feels a need to shout out, to call to them. You know, right. They are, the they are telling him to call out so that they can find him more easily. Yeah. 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 You know, which one are you? <laughs> I mean, the ring calls to them, but they're all bunched together. So Right. So they, yeah, so they might have trouble figuring. Yeah, they got like infrared vision and it's just a big blur. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, like you said, Strider tells him to hush and then Pippin gasps and that's where I'll pick up. Absolutely. Over the lip of the little dell, on the side away from the hill, they felt, rather than saw, a shadow rise. One shadow or more than one. They strained their eyes and the shadows seemed to grow. Soon there could be no doubt. Three or four tall black figures were standing there on the slope, looking down on them. So black were they that they seemed like black holes in the deep shade behind them. Frodo thought that he heard a faint hiss as of venomous breath and felt a thin, piercing chill. Then the shapes slowly advanced. Terror overcame Pippin and Mary, and they threw themselves flat on the ground. Sam shrank to Frodo's side. Frodo was hardly less terrified than his companions. He was quaking as if he was bitter cold, but his terror was swallowed up in a sudden temptation to put on the ring. The desire to do this laid hold of him, and he could think of nothing else. He did not forget the barrow, nor the message of Gandalf, but something seemed to be compelling him to disregard all warnings, and he longed to yield. Not with the hope of escape, or of doing anything, either good or bad. He simply felt that he must take the ring and put it on his finger. He could not speak. He felt Sam looking at him as if he knew that his master was in some great trouble, but he could not turn towards him. He shut his eyes and struggled for a while. But resistance became unbearable, and at last he slowly drew out the chain and slipped the ring on the forefinger of his left hand. Oh, man, he tried. But yeah, he did try, but this is a power beyond you. Yeah. yeah I mean, again, this is the ring at work. This is the ring. Oh, in its most masterful him, way so far. Compelling yeah. him mm-hmm. to put it on. He could think of nothing else. That power is amplified by the presence of the Witch King in a way mm-hmm. that, you know, yeah. the, the ring never was able to compel before, Frodo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Not to this level. Yeah. And especially with so many of the Nazgul in, in their presence. Right. right here. Exactly. Yeah. It's Kamul who overtakes them on the path. And he's right. the second best at detecting the ring. Here we've right? actually got the Witch King and, and a few others. You know, a few others, yeah. <laughs> five of them total, right? Mm-hmm. And boy, what a what a tense moment here. Yeah. You know, we talked in the last episode about the sort of time lapse that we felt when we were at the top of Weathertop looking all around, and mm-hmm. we just felt time passing by really quickly. Here it's the other way around. Time freezes yeah. at this moment. Yeah. This is all happening within within milliseconds. Yeah. The temptation, the overwhelming need to put it on. Yeah. Inability to speak. You feel 
feels so badly for him right now. He feels Sam looking at him, but he can't mm-hmm. even turn and look at Sam. Like, like help me. He can't even look at him. Right. All he can do All is he can fight do this is, temptation. Yeah. And then fail at the so end. So strong, and he fails at the end. Yeah, overwhelming. There was a line earlier when they advanced. What was it? The uh, the faint hiss as a venomous breath. Yeah. And thin piercing chill. Ooh. So there's the black breath. Yeah. You know, they're a little far away to be affected by it like Mary was, uh, but they certainly, you know, the fear is what happens there. And that's when yeah. terror overcomes Pippin and, Pippin and Mary. They throw themselves on the ground. Sam is shrinking. They're done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Incredibly terrifying moment for all of them. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to actually go ahead and pick up there and read to the end of the chapter, and then we'll discuss the Wraith world. What happens when he puts the ring on? In a world where you put on the ring from the Dark Lord. It's a race against the Wraiths. It's a race against the wraiths. You got to say it right. No, I'm just kidding. It's teasing. a race anyway. against the wraiths. Against the wraiths. See what I did there? They're the wraiths. All right. Please go ahead and read. Now we're getting goofy. <laughs> now we're getting goofy. All right. Yep. This is a tense moment. So we're trying like we did with the Silmarillion when we got into really tense moments where we tried to kind of, you know, punch up the humor a little bit because... Golly, this is scary stuff. It's a defense mechanism, really. Yeah. It is, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Immediately, though everything else remained as before, dim and dark, the shapes became terribly clear. He was able to see beneath their black wrappings. There were five tall figures, two standing on the lip of the dell, three advancing. In their white faces burned keen and merciless eyes. Under their mantles were long gray robes. Upon their gray hairs were helms of silver. In their haggard hands were swords of steel. And again, more of that alliteration, huh? Sorry, mm-hmm. I don't mean to, but the haggard hands, the swords of steel, this is just... Hairs, good, helms, no. silver yeah. sword, mm-hmm. steel, yeah. Yeah, it's all there. Their eyes fell on him and pierced him as they rushed towards him. Desperate, he drew his own sword, and it seemed to him that it flickered red as if it was a firebrand. Two of the figures halted. The third was taller than the others. His hair was long and gleaming, and on his helm was a crown. In one hand he held a long sword, and in the other a knife. Both the knife and the hand that held it glowed with a pale light. He sprang forward and bore down on Frodo. At that moment Frodo threw himself forward on the ground, and he heard himself crying aloud, O Elbereth, Gilthoniel! At the same time, he struck at the feet of his enemy. A shrill cry rang out in the night, and he felt a pain like a dart of poisoned ice pierce his left shoulder. Even as he swooned, he caught, as through a swirling mist, a glimpse of Strider leaping out of the darkness with a flaming brand of wood in either hand. With a last effort, Frodo, dropping his sword, slipped the ring from his finger and closed his right hand tight upon it. Well, wow. what a way to end the chapter, mm-hmm. huh? <laughs> Such a powerful moment. Such a powerful Scary. moment, indeed. It's tense. It's, it's otherworldly. It is you know, otherworldly. We really get a glimpse yeah. at what's going on here. We get a glimpse into, into Wraith World, which I'll, I'll note is a little less popular than Disney World. <laughs> I, should, I should just point that out. Annual passes for Wraith World are now available for next to nothing. Oh, yeah. No, it's not crowded at all. You can walk right no. on to pretty much any ride. Most of the rides aren't that good, though. I mean, yeah. what do they have there? Well, let's see. There's the Corsairs of the Caribbean, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. 
I'm trying to think of some of the others. There's oh, the uh, uh, big Weathertop Mountain Railroad, of course. Of course, of course. Great moments with Mr. Kamul. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and don't forget to see the Witch King's Castle. There's the Space Where Your Head Should Be Mountain. Space Where Your Head Should Be Mountain. I like that one. That's good. And then there's Slash Mountain, of course. Slash Mountain, of course. Slash Mountain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's the Haunted Mansion, just the Haunted Mansion. Oh, yeah. But it's really alone. good. It's yeah, Phenomenal. I'm yeah. sure it's really, really good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think we're done with that one, Sean. My goodness, we've... That's, that's awful. Yeah. Oh, but there's no Winnie the Pooh ride. No, there isn't. <laughs> which, of course, took the place of the uh, Country Bear Jamboree, which definitely would not have succeeded in Wraith World. No. No, no I can't see that. Did it really take the place of Country Bear Jamboree? Yeah, yeah, it did. Wow. Yeah, in fact, if you, on one of the sections, I forget which one, I think it's where you go into the room with the Huffalumps and Woozles. If you turn around, you see Big Al's head on the wall. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, yeah. In, uh, in <laughs> So in Disney World, there is still... The Winnie the Pooh ride, and there's still the Country Bear Jamboree. But oh, okay. Yeah. There, the Winnie the Land, Pooh took the place yeah. of Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. Oh. And there's a picture on the wall. The of, Witch King's Wild Ride. We could do, or Camus Wild Ride. Yeah, That'd that's true. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but yeah, you say that about the picture, and not that this is a Disney yeah. World podcast, but no, there's actually a picture not. on the wall of Owl with uh, Mr. Toad. So there you go. Oh, well, there you go. little nod. Yeah. Yeah. So we will not be going uh, to Wraith World anytime soon, thankfully. No. No. <laughs> Sorry, folks. That was that was just classic Alan and Sean right there. <laughs> I don't mean good. I just mean no, classic. Just, That's just what just we do. It's just typical Alan and Sean for sure, yeah. Right, right. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's see. What do we got here? Uh, so back to I'm the gonna, text. <laughs> yeah, going back to the text here. You know, speaking of the Wraith World, you know, this idea of a, mm -hmm. an actual Wraith World, this is actually a phrase that Tolkien uses. Yeah. Gandalf in the chapter... What, two chapters from now? Many meetings. Yeah, many meetings, um, right. When when he finally is face-to-face -face with Frodo recovering again. and Yeah, yeah Rivendell. Yeah. Um, he says, you were in gravest peril while you wore the ring, for then you were half in the wraith world yourself, and they might have seized you. You could see them, and they could see you. Ooh, they could have seized him. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about yeah. that before. Yeah, because, I mean, we you know we know that they don't really have any Yeah, they don't have form. a physical they presence a physical to grab presence. his actual body. Right. But once he's in the Wraith world, they, they could have. Mm -hmm. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh, that's, there are a lot of close calls in this passage for both of them. I mean, yeah, there's a close call for Frodo, and we'll get in a little bit to a, a close call to the, for the Nazgul, for the Witch King himself. But before we do, I wanted to point out something that really just popped into my head. When Frodo threw himself forward and struck at the feet of his enemy, it totally reminded me of Fingolfin stabbing mm. the foot of Morgoth and, and wounding him in the foot because it was all he could do. Right wounding him seven times in the foot and he went, you know, halt of, of, of limb ever since. You kind of wonder if uh, the Witch King had a, had a limp, but we know he didn't because <laughs> he didn't actually hit him. That's the whole point. Uh, right. But it made he, me think of that. Yeah, exactly. He, he can't have hit him because one of the things no. that I noticed about this passage is that when Frodo draws his sword, you know, it's, it flickers oh, yeah. red as if it was a firebrand. Remember There's something here. Remember what sword Frodo actually has at this moment. Right. He's it's got a barrel blade. A, he's got it? a barrel blade. That's right. And yeah. you actually see that a couple of them were scared of it. Yeah. In fact, you even see that two of them uh, fall back. They halt. Yeah. Two of the figures halted. And yet uh, the third one did not. And of course, the third one is the witch. Yeah. King. So, yeah. I mean, the, the fact that the riders, the, the two of them are actually stopping, they must recognize that it's a barrel blade and mm -hmm. they know that that blade can actually harm them. 
I think the Witch King knows that too, but still isn't afraid. But yeah, we know that those blades are deadly. I mean, this is the same kind of blade that Mary will use at the end of the book to take the Witch King's life or to help lead to the taking of the witch king's life right. i should say right well and i think to that's to break exa- the spell that knits send you to will his, right. right exactly and i think that's exactly why the witch king isn't afraid because he knows that prophecy um mm. glorfindel's prophecy that says not by no the hand man. of man will he fall you know he's right we we'll see this later i think i've even written about it in a prancing pony pondering once upon a time about how the witch king kind of misinterprets this prophecy, obviously. Well, yeah. Uh, and I think he's he's got sort of a false sense of confidence. He's had this false sense of confidence for centuries. And so <laughs> yes, he has. even when he sees yeah. a barrel blade, he's like, ah, I'm not going to fall by the hand of man. He yeah. doesn't realize that hobbits don't count and there's no woman. They're not present, really men. So. Right. Yeah. And he hasn't really checked Frodo. I mean, <laughs> girl hobbits might look the same. I don't know. They might. I mean, really, how does he know? To the, the Witch King. Yeah, for all Frodo's he knows, they're like dwarves glowing... where you can't really tell the difference between men and right. women. Right. It's the beards. <laughs> anyway, I'm very sorry. <laughs> it, in yeah. this case, it's the lack of beards, right? I mean, none right. of them have facial hair, so you can't identify the men. Right, right. But yeah, that's just a really a really neat moment that you, you kind of almost miss. Yeah. But but obviously, because it is a barrow blade, he must miss because he doesn't. Well, yeah. And we'll <laughs> get to that, actually. Yeah. Tolkien has something to say about that. We'll, oh, okay. We'll yeah. get to that as we kind of go into the sidebar. But Great. I notice, of course, you can't help but notice, oh, Elbereth Gilthoniel. Mm. Just a reminder, of course, Elbereth is Varda. Gilthoniel literally means star kindler, which, of course, is you know one of Varda's nicknames or epithets. That's right. Uh, and it's just a, a lovely name. That's right. We will see the longer version of this hymn to Varda in the mini meetings chapter. Again, that'll be in season four. Yep. Uh, yep. We actually saw it translated into Westron in chapter three in this season. Those That was episodes That's 104 right. and 105. Boy, that was a while ago, but you're right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, we'll see a different verse of it again at the end of season six in the choices of Master Samwise. Oh, that's right. Of course. Yeah. Now, here I want to point out something that one of our listeners brought to our attention. Chris B. pointed out an interesting observation that Corey Olson mentioned, and some of his some of his listeners were discussing in, in the Exploring the Lord of the Rings series. Uh-huh. There they discussed that the invocation of Varda or Elbereth uh, may be a sort of a spiritual parry of the Ringwraith's oh, attack yeah. and may have actually been partly responsible for the Wraiths not renewing the attack after Frodo gets stabbed. Huh. They even wondered with the fact that Frodo has been named an elf friend by Gildor, which we know that's a very uh, significant thing. Uh, yeah. That's that's not just it a is. name. You know, after no. he's been named elf friend, Goldberry actually perceives that on Frodo. And exactly. There's a there's some sort of physiological sort of change, yeah. observable change mm-hmm. that Goldberry perceives. Right? Yeah. And so Corey Olson's group was wondering if, you know, does this give him some sort of ability to call on Varda to oh. give him actual oh, yeah. actual aid? Now that you're an elf friend, here's a business card for Varda. Call her when you need her. <laughs> that's, man, that's powerful stuff. I would love to have some Nine, of that. 911, you know. I, I mean, would love to go. have the bat phone for Varda, man. Boy, you're not kidding. But yeah, Chris says the, the problem, group- though, is the bat signal. It, it's just a bunch of stars, so it kind of gets lost in this guy. <laughs> <laughs> she never knows when she's being called. Yeah, right. It's just more stars. Because <laughs> it's just a bunch of stars. Right. <laughs> anyway, sorry. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, no, that's great. Yeah, well, no. It's actually terrible, but I'll take it. It is terrible, but it's 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 us terrible, yeah. which makes it fun. Right, right. That's true. Well, anyway, Chris says the group spent about 15 hours on this and related oh topics. Oh, my goodness. Which oh, my goodness. We won't. And fortunately, no, we don't no. need to because Corey Olson already has. But it's a very yeah. cool speculation from uh, the Exploring the Lord of the Rings series. Yeah. Well, and I, I suspect you get a lot of that when you spend, you know, that many hours on one small section. Yeah, yeah. We can't do that or we'd be 
in our, I don't know, 90s when we finish the show? I don't know how that's going to work. I feel well, like we would Sean. really be stretching it if we were to do that. And that's just because I don't think we'd find the things he finds. And I don't think we no, you know, no. I don't think we'd. We're different. We're, yeah, we're, we're just different, different. That's for sure. Yeah. yeah. So then, of course, uh, his shoulder pierced. He's, he's swooning and he sees Strider. So I, I think that gives us a chance maybe to, to do another, another sidebar on the Black Riders, right? Yeah, yeah. Thanks to that Marquette manuscript that was cited by Hammond and Skull. Right, right. Got a little bit on that here. It says, The Witch King now knows who is the bearer and is greatly puzzled that it should be a small creature and not Aragorn, who seems to be a great power, though apparently only a ranger. But the only bearer, a ranger, yeah. <laughs> right, I know. But the bearer has been marked with the knife and, he thinks, cannot last more than a day or two. Mm, and that's important. I think that's a big reason why mm -hmm. they didn't keep pursuing. So after noting that the Witch King lost the trail again, Tolkien explains that there were probably several reasons, the least to be expected being the most important, namely that the Witch King, the great captain, was actually dismayed. He had been shaken by the fire of Gandalf and began to perceive that the mission on which Sauron had sent him was one of great peril to himself, both by the way and on his return to his master, if unsuccessful. And his <laughs> progress reports on this job aren't looking very good so far. <laughs> no. This is a bad job to take, man. Sauron's HR department is going to have a lot of work in front of them. Yeah, they are. This is a big write-up. Yeah. The biggest concern, though, was that, and again quoting, the timid and terrified bearer had resisted him, had dared to strike at him with an enchanted sword made by his own enemies long ago for his destruction. Narrowly, it had missed him. How he had come by it, save in the barrows of Cardolan. Mm -hmm. Then he was in some way mightier than the Barrow White, and he called on Elbereth, a name of terror to the Nazgul. He was then in league with the High Elves of the Havens. Tolkien even observes that escaping a wound that would have been as deadly to him as the Mordor knife to Frodo, as was proved at the end, he withdrew and hid for a while, out of doubt and fear, both of Aragorn and especially of Frodo. And the emphasis on that is in the original. But fear of Sauron and the forces of Sauron's will was the stronger. Mm. Man, if Frodo had been successful in striking the Witch King with the blade of Westerness that he carried, what a blow that would have been. That would have been amazing. Uh, I would have yeah. been robbed of one of my favorite scenes later on. Well, true. Probably actually my favorite scene later on, but still, that yeah, would have been pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, story over, though. I mean, for the most part. Yeah. <laughs> now they can stroll to Mordor. Well, folks, it looks like somebody is waving a flaming brand of wood, so that must mean it's time to wrap up the chapter discussion for this week. I, I see it as through a mist. Uh, <laughs> That's the Middle-Earth version of the wrap-it-up box. Exactly, yeah. So, folks, be sure to come back in four weeks. Well, you're going to want to come back sooner than that, but that's when we'll pick up our chapter discussions again when we learn that Frodo is made of sterner stuff than Strider had supposed in the first part of Chapter 12, Flight to the Ford. The last chapter of Book 1, and that must mean Season 3 of the Prancing Pony Podcast is nearing its end. But before we get to that, next week is going to be our quarterly Questions After Nightfall episode, and you do not want to miss that. And the week after that, artist Greg Hildebrandt will be joining us on the show. We had a wonderful discussion with him talking about the Tolkien calendars that he and his twin brother Tim made back in the 70s, and of course, some of the other good stuff like, oh, I don't know, a really iconic Star Wars poster, maybe? So... <laughs> Yeah. Definitely want to join us for that. That was really cool. Uh, and then we have the um, the weekend of the 4th of July off so that we can do a few things with our family. And then we'll be back for our chapter discussions after that, three in a row for Flight to the Ford. There you go. Now, before we reach into Barlaman's bag, we want to take just a minute to remind you about the Fellowship of the Podcast. 
In fact, if you want to take part in our Q&A episodes in Season 4, now's the time to check out patreon.com slash prancingponypod. It's also where you'll want to go if you want to join our Discord server and listen in to a live episode recording each month, as well as gain access to other exclusive content. And if you're looking for a new Tolkien book, check out the official library pages at our website, theprancingponypodcast.com, where we've put together a set of links for our listeners to all the books we've ever mentioned on the show, Tolkien or otherwise. And if you wouldn't mind posting a review on iTunes, we'd be grateful for that. That increases our visibility. It means more new listeners, more great questions for Barlaman, more discussion on social media, and a more vibrant Tolkien community. That's right. And speaking of social media, it is really helpful to us if you share us. So whether it's on Facebook or Twitter or Reddit or wherever you might happen to find Tolkien fans, please let them know about the show. Now, with all that, it's time to see what Barlaman has in the mailbag for us. Sean. Well, every once in a while, we witness a convergence in the listener questions sent into Barlamin, a time when a lot of the listeners are coming up with the same or similar questions. Yeah, it's like when the moon is in Venus or something like that. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Mercury retrograde or it's something. A convergence, right. Yeah, yeah Mercury retrograde. <laughs> what is Tom uh, Bombadil or what was up with Durin's day? Well, Oh, boy, you're right. We did get a bunch of those we yeah, did, all at yeah. the same time. You're right. Well, we've got another of those uh, convergences tonight. Folks, between January and March of 2019, we had four listeners write to us with what amounted to basically the same two, maybe two and a half questions about the ring rates. So here we go. <laughs> okay. Brandon A. in Connecticut and Brian S. in Carmel, Indiana, and our old friend Arthur H., who's president of the Tavildo Fan Club, of course, I'm the treasurer. Oh. <laughs> they all asked about Nazgul cloaks. Arthur kept his question simple, asking, why can we see the Nazgul's clothing, but we can't see Frodo's when he rings up? Uh, but, but Brandon and Brian both asked a slightly different question. They asked, since we can see the cloaks of the Nazgul, why don't they take them off so they can be completely invisible? Probably because they're very ashamed of their bodies. No, I'm just kidding. Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. They're very thin. I don't know. They've got nothing to be they ashamed of. They are very of. thin, probably a little on the gaunt side, but yeah. 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 Anyway, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Back in episode 85, near the end of season two and our read through of The Hobbit, we dug into the question of what items, weapons, articles of clothing, and so on would be invisible when somebody puts on the one ring. We concluded that the ring typically confers invisibility to the wearer and anything on the wearer's person, under their clothes, in their pockets, bags, and such. Weapons held in hands, and anything that gives off its own light, like the Elendil mirror, Porosildor, would not be invisible. But that's when wearing the ring. Right. Now, remember that the invisibility effect that's granted by wearing the One Ring is really a crossing over into the unseen world. Uh, we talked right. about that already right. with that quote from the chapter, uh, Many Meetings, that's coming up in, well, at the beginning mm -hmm. of Season 4. Right about how Frodo was half in the Wraith world. Well, mm -hmm. as I was reminded not long ago by a few of our listeners, the ring wraiths <laughs> do not wear the nine rings they were given. That's uh, correct. I no, they do not, Sean. Yes, I know, I know. I was sleeping. It was my fault that I let that go. <laughs> Don't it's, know what happened. Hey, it is not all that clear in the book. I defended myself. Sean said it with such conviction, I, I just It is very clear <laughs> in Unfinished Tales, not so clear in the yeah. book. Go back a few episodes Very crystal clear, and, yes. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, the ring rates are not wearing their rings. Sauron holds no. them. So the ring rates invisibility is not an effect of wearing the ring. They're right. actually permanently in that wraith world that a ring bearer can half enter by putting on the ring. The Nazgul right. have been stretched to the point where they're not fully part of our world anymore. And we see mm -hmm. some of that in, in this episode yeah. that we've talked about. Yeah. And I think that must be the difference. I think that's why... A ring bearer can half enter the unseen world, clothes and all, by putting on the ring. But the wraiths, 
throw are, their actual bodies are permanently in that world. What's left of the them, that is, yeah. What's left of them, yeah. And I think that's yeah. the answer to Arthur's question. It's just, it's part of yeah. it's part of their nature now that they're just in that world and they're always invisible. Yeah, that's correct. As for Brandon and Brian's question about why the Nazgul don't just go uncloaked so they can be invisible, Gandalf gives us the answer to that question, and it's again in the chapter Many Meetings. He tells Frodo, the black robes are real robes that they wear to give shape to their nothingness when they have dealings with the living. Uh, dry cleaner, we need heavy starch on these. <laughs> I'm just thinking that's, sorry. In every instance where we've seen the Black Riders so far, they've been hunting for Frodo and the ring, which has involved a lot of questioning of and, well, frankly, terrorizing of the living. Yeah. They can't really do that without their cloaks because without them, they're not visible. So what's more, as we learn in this chapter, the Black Riders do not see the world of light as we do. Their horses can see, but their horses are living. And so I don't think they'd be able to ride or use the senses of their horses when they're not cloaked. They have to have that anchor into the physical world. Yeah, I think that's true. Well, and their horses wouldn't want them on there if they were invisible. Like, hey, who are you? <laughs> what, yeah, what, what is that? Who are you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I feel something strange. I don't see anything. Yeah. Hey, Joe, do you see anybody on my back? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I'll take thoughts that go through the horses of the Nazgul's minds for 200, Alex. Daily double. <laughs> oh, those look like white horses coming down the river. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely done. <laughs> Brandon and Brian did both speculate in their questions that that might be the reason for them not wanting to be invisible. And in fact, that does appear to be the answer. Yeah, I agree with all of that. And I would only add to it the observation that, you know, frankly, if the ring rates were to go uncloaked and spy on anyone or anything in the book while completely invisible, we wouldn't really know about it, That's would we? That's true. No, we wouldn't. You're right. I mean, as, far as, right. as far as we know, they do not. But, I mean, we don't really know, don't know for sure. I don't know they could do much. I don't right? think they could. Be, I don't think they could do much spying without some shape to their nothingness. But, you know, hey, yeah, yeah. who are we to say that they're not running around completely naked and completely invisible sometimes? That's a terrifying thought. Isn't it, though? <laughs> so, anyway. Naked ring rates. On to our second convergence question of the evening. Brandon A. again asked another question in his email to us that was also asked by Zach T., which was essentially, what would happen if one of the ring rates actually got the ring from Frodo here? Oh. Doesn't the ring seduce pretty much everyone who comes near it? And what's to stop one of the Nazgul from just claiming the ring for himself and supplanting Sauron? And they're obviously already oh. pretty corruptible guys. True. Or do we really think they would just take the ring back to Sauron like good servants? Now, Tolkien doesn't answer this question directly anywhere, but he does kind of sideways address it when he answers the question about what would happen if Frodo had claimed the ring at Mount Doom. Of course, he did that, but the letter is assuming that Gollum hadn't been there to take it from him. And this mm -hmm. is all from letter 246. Mm -hmm. He says, Sauron sent at once the ring wraiths. Now, that's not a what if. That, of course, actually happened. Tolkien goes on to say, they were naturally fully instructed and in no way deceived as to the real lordship of the ring. The wearer would not be invisible to them, but the reverse and the more vulnerable to their weapons. But the situation was now different to that under Weathertop, where Frodo acted merely in fear and wished only to use, in vain, the ring's subsidiary power of conferring invisibility. He had grown since then. Would they have been immune from its power if he claimed it as an instrument of command and domination? Not wholly. I do not think they could have attacked him with violence, nor laid hold upon him or taken him captive. They would have obeyed or feigned to obey any minor commands of his that did not interfere with their errand laid upon them by Sauron, who still through their nine rings, which he held, had primary control of their wills. That errand was to remove Frodo from the crack. 
Now, that's interesting for a couple of reasons. Yeah. yeah. For, first of all, the comment that the ring wraiths are in no way deceived as to the real lordship of the ring, mm-hmm. that tells us that, you know, although they are subservient to the one ring, their allegiance is ultimately to Sauron because he yeah. controls their rings. Right. So I would think that as long as Sauron still has their nine rings, which of course he does right here in this chapter when they're at Weathertop. Right. Right. I don't think they would be able to usurp his place and claim the one ring for themselves. I mean, and that no. makes sense, right? Yeah, I don't think they could. I mean, Sauron simply would not trust them to retrieve the one ring for him if he had any doubts whatsoever that they were not, you know, completely, totally under his control. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. Now, the other thing that's interesting about that passage you read is that, okay, if Frodo had claimed the ring, they would know he was not their lord, but they wouldn't be able to take it or him by force right. or violence, right? So let's just transfer that to the Witch King. Let's say the Witch King did claim the ring somehow. Mm-hmm. Could the other wraiths have taken it? Or would they, <laughs> like, kind of like as Tolkien says, ring would, fight! They, yeah. <laughs> would they feign to obey the Witch King until ah, they could accomplish yeah. their last order given to them by Sauron, which at this point is still, you know, bring me back the bring ring. Back. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I kind of love the idea that the other race would just follow the usurping witch king back to Mordor, you know, pretend to obey them. And then as soon as they're back <laughs> yeah, let's in Sauron. Yeah, let's go get that Sauron guy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. Exactly. And then as soon as they're back in Sauron's presence, then turn the witch king into the big boss. Hey, Sauron, guess what? <laughs> Here he is. Here, I got your witch king and your ring. Uh I don't know. I mean, it's kind of a cool idea, yeah. but I just, yeah. I don't honestly think it's possible because I, I really do no. think Sauron has their wills under his control that much. I mean, yeah. As you said, Alan, I think that's the only reason he trusts them with this job. But what do you think? Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. He could destroy the ring that, like, let's say he has, the, he's, he's got all nine rings. He could grab the Witch King's ring and destroy the ring. What happens to the Witch King? Witch King's gone. No, he ceases true. to exist. That is true. This isn't just the power over their wills. It's the power over their power existence. Power over their, their existence. Yeah. They You're know it. right. So I think there's, there's something there. Uh, but their wills, too, are fully under the control of Sauron. I mean, they're not automatons. They still have agency to make decisions and sometimes wrong yeah. decisions, as we yeah. see in the, the hunt for the ring. <laughs> a few times, <laughs> Poor yeah. Poor guy's going to get a right up there. But they're about as close to an automaton as an independent sentient being can be. I mean, Sauron's possession of their rings combined with that stretched nature, the fact that they're only living as wraiths because of those rings, mm-hmm. puts them in a position where usurping Sauron, I, I honestly don't think it's even a consideration for them. That's, that's a very good point. And yeah, that that has to be the case because otherwise yeah. there is no way they're trusted with this job. No, Sauron would not be sending them thousands of miles away <laughs> no. to get a ring and bring it back safely if he right. didn't think, if he wasn't entirely 100% certain that they couldn't do anything yep. to usurp him. Yeah. Yep. I think that's right on. Well, folks, that wraps it up for another episode of the Prancing Pony Podcast. Now, please be sure to join us again next week when several of our patrons shine a light on our lack of immediate recall and knowledge on our quarterly questions after nightfall. Well, I guess that's better than stabbing us in the shoulder with a gleaming knife, but... Eh, barely. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really. Folks, thanks again for listening, and thank you for making our common room on Facebook such a fun place to spend time. We want all of you to be a part of this conversation, and it does not stop when the episode ends. See the comments, questions, corrections, and more on Facebook at The Prancing Pony Podcast, on Twitter at Prancing Pony Pod, and on Instagram at Prancing Pony Pod. And a very special thank you to our patrons at the Kirdan's Contribution Tier, Demay in Alaska, James in Virginia, Tamsin in Minnesota, Emily in Texas, and Chad in Texas. Thank you all. 
Make sure you don't miss any episodes of the Prancing Pony Podcast. Subscribe to the show through iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And one last thing as always, don't forget to send your thoughts, comments, and most of all, video of when you cried aloud, oh, Elbereth Gilthoniel, as you fell to the ground, to Barliman at theprancingponypodcast.com. I really actually want to see some of those. Uh, and, and we'll maybe not get them into our next show, but we'll put them on some social media channels. There you go. <laughs> well, however long we've had, it is still far too short a time to spend among such excellent and admirable listeners. But until next time. Farewell, friends. 